Very good. Well, I want to thank everyone for coming back again this week. And again, there is a handout out in the lobby for you. I am Lisa Moore, if you weren't here last week, and I'm very excited to be teaching the book of Ephesians. I really love to study my Bible, to teach how to study the Bible, and to teach the Bible. So I'm getting to do all three with this. So I do want to just give a little caveat about the handouts and my slides. This is my first time really making a handout. I've never done a handout before. And it's my first time trying to go to the next level with my slides. And you will find some inconsistencies, just like you probably saw last week. There were some imperfections, and you're going to see some more of those this week. So just have grace with me as I learn how to do this, because I don't really have a clue what I'm doing. So I'm learning as I go along, and it's all good. And you will see my husband come in a little later. He just got off the plane and should be on his way here. He does not want to miss the Jews and the Gentiles. And let me tell you what because my husband has heard me talk about the Jews and the Gentiles all week, because I have been up to my ears in Jews and Gentiles. And so I told him he needed to make sure he got here tonight to hear all about them. So I teach out of the New American Standard Bible. So if you're following along, that's what I teach out of. It's a word-for-word translation as opposed to a thought-for-thought. And there are a couple of resources that I use heavily, and, and I felt a little guilty for using some of them. But what I found is, is I study the scripture first, and then I do the word studies, and then I do the cross-references, and then I sit down and figure out, okay, what does this mean to me? And then these men just put a punctuation mark on what I've just studied in such a concise and succinct way that I just can't say it as well as they do sometimes. So I have uh, Warren Wearsby's commentary called Be Rich. And so I'll say Wearsby said. And then I have John MacArthur's commentary on the Ephesians. I do want to add one caveat about this, something I knew, but Pastor Tom reminded me of last week. And that's that Pastor John MacArthur is a long-standing, well-respected Bible scholar and a man of God. But in recent years, he has written a book called Strange Fire that basically comes, it, it attacks the charismatic movement, its followers, its leaders, which would include this church. And so while I can highly recommend this book that was written when I was 15 years old in 1986, I can't recommend his most recent books that have been um, like Strange Fire that was written, I think maybe four years ago. So I just want to add that caveat. This is an amazing book. When I read this book, it was like I got saved all over again. So I highly recommend this book. So I just want to add that. I don't, don't want to confuse anybody. So let's jump into Ephesians. As we said last week, Ephesians was written to the church at Ephesus, which was on the west coast of Turkey. And on Paul's mission, third missionary journey, he went there and he stayed for a couple of years and he saw the whole vast area evangelized and he founded a strong church. And all of that is covered in Acts 19 and 20. And he was around 60 years old when he wrote the book of Ephesians. He wrote it in prison. And he'll refer, I'm a prisoner in chains. I'm the bond slave of the Lord. So he was in prison. The content, the content overview, I got ahead of myself, but that's fine. The content overview is the first three chapters emphasize theology and doctrine We talked a lot last week about our riches in Christ, and I had my checkbook register and the transaction register, and we talked about our riches in Christ. This week, we're going to talk about the Jews and the Gentiles becoming one, and then next week, we're going to talk about the mystery. I've been studying the mystery. And then the last three chapters emphasize behavior and practical instruction, submission, and spiritual warfare. So last week I said, if you were to sum up Ephesians in, three, in eight words, it would be these. You are rich in Christ, so walk worthy. You are rich in Christ and walk worthy, so walk worthy. And that's on your handout. 
So last week we did learn about our riches in Christ. In Christ, we're adopted, we're chosen, we're blessed, we're redeemed, we're forgiven, we're graced with grace, we're sealed with Holy Spirit, and we have an inheritance. And we talked last week about how so many of us, when we have that full checkbook register, we're afraid to write a check. And so it's the same with our riches in Christ. We're rich in Christ, so we need to live like princes and not paupers and use those riches in Christ. So let's talk about chapter two, which is our subject for this week. The divisions in chapter two, the first 10 chapters will be reconciliation of sinners to God. And then the next verses will be reconciliation of the Jews and the Gentiles to each other and to God. Let's jump in with Ephesians 2.1, verses 1 through 3. And if you can just read this along in your Bible. I can't put every verse on the handout. And some of the passages are so big, you couldn't see them if I put them on the screen. So that's why not everything is on the handout or the screen. I think I've got 17 pages here, so that's why it's not all on the handout. I go fast though. Okay, verse one. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. In these three verses, Paul gives a full-length picture of the terrible spiritual condition of the unredeemed person. When I study, I like to make lists, and in these scriptures, he names a lot of different things, if I count, I think it's eight. So this is a good time you would wanna make a list because there's three verses with a whole lot of things listed. And so a list is very helpful here. So these are the things that they, these Gentiles, were, were the Ephesians that were Gentiles. They were dead in their trespasses and sins, walking according to the course of this world, walking according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience, living in the lust of their flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and by nature, children of wrath. So what does being spiritually dead mean? It means that on the inside, you're spiritually dead while you're physically alive. And that was the state of the Gentiles or any unredeemed person. So when you're spiritually dead, You're dead to righteousness, peace, love, joy, happiness, any spiritual life, truth. So a spiritually dead person is spiritually dead because they're alienated or cut off from God. Dead while they live is the sad state of every unredeemed human being. MacArthur says, in the state of spiritual death, the only walking or living a person can do is according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. God's standard for men is holiness. We know that 1 Peter 1.16 says, you shall be holy for I am holy. We know that on our own, we all fall short. Apart from Christ, we fall short of God's standard for holiness. And Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. MacArthur goes on to say, and I thought this was really interesting because we think, well, we can do good things. Good people can do good things. But MacArthur says, a person apart from God can do humanly good things. Throughout history, people have varied greatly in their levels of human goodness and wickedness. But in relation to achieving God's holiness, they are equal failures. That is why the good, helpful, kind, considerate, self-giving person needs salvation as much as the multiple murderer on death row. They do not lead equally sinful lives, but... They are equally in the state of sin, equally separated from God and from spiritual life. 
So I like that. They don't live equally sinful lives. You know, the, the good person does good things, not as much sin. The murderer, very sinful. But they're both separated from God's holiness. Our goodness can't achieve any standard of holiness or righteousness. And so Ephesians 2, 2, it says, we walked according to the prince of the power of the air. And I, I wanna take just a minute to explain who that is. A few cross-references, Revelation 12, and I'm just gonna read seven, part of seven in verse nine. And there was a war in heaven, and the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. First John 5, 19. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. John 8, 44, and this is Jesus speaking. He says, you are of your father, the devil. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So the prince of the power of the air is the devil, and he's a deceiver, and he's a liar, and he has a whole host of fallen angels called demons that help him do his job on the earth. And we walked according to his power, according to his course when we were um, unsaved. So I'm gonna kind of bounce around a little bit between the good news and the bad news. So that's the bad news. But the good news is that we have a savior. And in relation to our enemy, we touched on this last week where Jesus is right now. Ephesians 1.22 talks about God, and it says he raised him, Jesus. A lot of times when you're studying your Bible, there's a lot of pronouns. He raised him, and you're like, well, who raised who, and what does it mean? And you just have to read it over and over to get the context, and I try to mark in my Bible who I think is God and who I think is Jesus, and five years later, I'll come back and change my mind. <laughs> so you might miss it sometimes, but the more you study, the more, you'll, the more you'll figure out how to do that. So God raised Jesus, that one's an easy one, from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So that's where Jesus is. Far above, that's a key phrase, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet. And we're gonna learn tonight where we are. Even though we're physically here in our bodies, spiritually, Ephesians 2.6 says, God seated us with him. Not God will seat, but God seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So we have dual citizenship. We are citizens of both earth and heaven. And I can't explain all the mystery of that to you, but I love how it says Jesus is seated far above all rule and power and authority and dominion in every name. And we're seated with Jesus. So where does that mean we're seated? Far above all rule and power and authority and dominion in every name that is named. Colossians 1.13 says, For he rescued us for the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So without Christ, we were walking in this domain of darkness according to the world, our flesh, and the devil. We were doing what we wanted to. We were letting the, the enemy lead us along. We were doing what the world, what the news and magazines and peer pressure wanted us to do. But in Christ, we're transferred to his kingdom. I get really excited when I teach this next section because it's just the gospel in a nutshell and it, it so excites me. So let's jump down to Ephesians chapter two, verse four. And this is on the slide and the handout. But God, so we were all those things. <laughs> you have to catch that. We were all of those bad things, all eight. We were doing all eight of those things formerly. But God, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. But God, 
That's good news, but God. Because from the creation of the world until now, God has wanted to dwell with holy humans. When God created Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, it was because God wanted to dwell with holy humans. They had to be holy humans to dwell with him because he's holy. And we know the story of Adam and Eve and the apple and the fall and how sin entered the world. And at that point, God could no longer fellowship with holy humans on an intimate level. And that's where he decided to send his son to pay the penalty of our sin so he could be restored to us and to fellowship with holy humans again. God wants to fellowship and dwell with us. So sin separated us from God, but because he was rich in mercy and because of this great love with which he loved us, he provided a way for us to return to fellowship with him. So last week, we talked a lot about the five W's and an H. It's a way that you can interrogate Scripture to understand what it means, who, what, when, how, where, and why. And so let's do the five W's and an H for these Scriptures. And sometimes you may disagree with where I land on these, and that's okay. We're all learning. So who is God? What? made us alive together with Christ, how, being saved by grace, why, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, when, even when we were dead in our transgressions. And I love that, that even when we were dead in our transgressions, that is when God did these things for us. So this is salvation in a nutshell. In a nutshell, this is it right here. So I want you to think for a few minutes about what you were like before you asked Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. You might have been like that formerly list. You probably were walking according to the course of this world, indulging your lust in your flesh, walking according to the prince of the power of the air, my mother and stepdad are here with me tonight, seated on the, on the back with Brian. So I just want to honor them for being here with us. And I had a conversation with my mom at lunch today about what I was like. And in one word, she just said, rebellious. <laughs> so everybody here thinks that Lisa, I have this, um, people think that I'm the sweet little church lady. That's right, nod your head, sweet little church lady. Lisa never did anything wrong. Pastor Willie said that to me, you never did anything wrong. Well, I might be little, and I was little back then, but I sure wasn't sweet. There was not a lot of sweet going on. So like any teenager, I was selfish, self-centered. The world revolved around me. It was me, myself, and I just like any teenager that you probably know. And I was prideful. I wanted to be the best. And I wanted to be the valedictorian of my high school. And so I concocted this plan that I was gonna take all of the advanced courses my senior year in high school so that I could get the highest grades and be the valedictorian because I wanted to show them I wanted to show them, especially some of those people that had bullied me and pushed me around through the years and gossiped about me. And on my graduation day, I did give a speech, but it was not from a place of humility and wanting to help people. It was, I showed you. You're sitting out there and I'm up here. And I was prideful and I was bitter because some of those people had really hurt me. I got my first fist fight, I think, when I was in the seventh grade because there was a a neighbor that talked about my polka-dotted shirt and my striped shorts, and I took my green Bundy flute case, and we went at it. So, So that's how I felt. I wanted to show them. So I was not always the sweet little church lady. Was I, Mama? (laughs) No. I did go to church. I went to church. We went to church. 
And I sang the hymns and led the youth group and did all the charity events, but deep inside, I was walking according to my flesh and the world and the devil. And I think many of us, as we look back at our past, we can probably say, I was doing the same thing too. Because before we meet Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we're all walking, just like Paul writes, we're all walking according to the devil and the world and our flesh. I wrote down, I wrote that we were lost in the world, indulging the lust of our flesh and running with the devil. We can all make a list of our mistakes and our sin, but God, but God. So even though God could have punished these people that he created, even when they were still out there sinning, he sent his son to die for them. The, the riches of his mercy and his love outweighed his wrath. When we were out in the world, living it up, enjoying life to its fullest, instead, instead of giving us the anger and punishment we deserve, God gives us mercy and he gives us love. He sent his son to die for us while we were dead in our sin. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So how are we saved? According to the five W's by H, five W's and an H were saved by grace. And so I wanna talk just a little bit. Okay, close your eyes. It's getting ready to get a little busy on the screen. Okay, so that's a picture of my Bible. And um, it's funny, when Pastor Tom is teaching, Brian and I have this little game. <laughs> I'll just confess. So if Pastor Tom is teaching out of Ephesians where I've marked everything, I'll point to it and I'll say, look, look, look at all this I've done. But then if he's teaching out of, say, First Chronicles and the page is blank because I've not studied it, Brian's like, you better get to work. You got some work to do, Lisa. <laughs> so I like it when we're in the New Testament because I can scribble my hand over a lot of things because I've done a lot there. So this is how I mark up my Bible. And what I do is I mark keywords. We've already talked about how the word grace is a key word in the book of Ephesians, how it's 12 times. So if you can see a royal blue, it looks like a G. That's every time that I marked the word grace. If you can pick out the red S, that's saved or salvation. If you can see the lavender circles, there's with verse five, a with Christ, um, Chapter six, in Christ, with him. Seven, in Christ. 10, in Christ Jesus. This is how you start to get the patterns in scripture. And I love to do this because it helps me pick up on things that if you just looked at the blank page, you wouldn't see that. And I know when I studied Hebrews, I kept seeing that Jesus died once and for all, once for all sin, for all time. And I kept marking that. And just doing that and understanding, getting the picture that Jesus died once for all sin, for all time, it changed my life. Wouldn't have happened without for my green pencil and marking key words in this way. So let's talk about grace. We talked about this some last week. It's the Greek word charis, which one of the definitions is favor on the part of the giver and thanks on the part of the receiver. It's a gift, it's a gift. And last week I shared my favorite quote about grace by Warren Wearsby. It's the kindness of God towards undeserving people. The kindness of God toward undeserving people. Wearsby says we're not acceptable before God because of anything that we do, but only by his grace. Good works can't do anything to bring about salvation, serving in the food pantry, giving to charity, volunteering. None of those things can bring salvation. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. But it's a gift of grace. Ephesians 2.6, moving on, 
says that God, it's referring to God, he's still the subject there, raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I think we're gonna see the heavenly places five or six times, that phrase, in the heavenly places, five or six times in the book of Ephesians. So I just wanna review from um, chapter one up to now what's going on in the heavenly places. So um, chapter one, verse three, we learned last week, we're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And we just saw Ephesians 1, 20 through 21, that Jesus is seated in the heavenly places far above, rule and power and dominion. And then chapter two, verse six, it says, in Christ, I'm seated there. And I think your handout might say two, seven, or maybe, I got ahead, I got behind. There we go. There's the mistake. (laughs) It should say two, six, in Christ, I'm seated there. So that's what's going on in the heavenly places. And so I love this. Why did God, so think about this. Why did God save us by grace, make us alive with Christ, and seat us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus? Now, if I passed around an open mic, we could have a lot of different answers. You know, first, God wants to be restored in fellowship with these holy humans. But I want us to answer this according to the context because you need to interpret scripture in light of the context. So in light of the context around these verses, let's look at Ephesians 2, 7. And it starts with, in order that. So anytime you see an in order that, or a so that, or a because, it answers the question, why? Why? Why did I go out to lunch today? in order that I might eat, so that I could eat because I was hungry. So I love to look at this. Why did God save us by grace, make us alive with Christ, seat us in the heavenly places? Ephesians 2, 7. And this is in the NIV because I like the way it says it. In order that in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So the riches of God's grace are incomparable. In the New American Standard, it's surpassing. And we saw that word last week when we talked about the surpassing greatness of God's power toward us who believe. And I talked about what it meant was to throw, but to throw beyond. So if you were throwing a football pass and you threw it beyond the person, that's what surpassing means. It means to throw beyond, exceeding, surpassing, incomparable. So why did God save us? In order that, in the coming ages, he might show us his grace expressed in kindness. So I want you to repeat that after me. Grace expressed in kindness. If you don't get anything tonight, I want you to get this. Grace expressed in kindness. So while we were dead in our sin, walking according to the world, our flesh, the devil, God saved us, made us alive with Christ, seated us with him in the heavenly places in order that forever he might show us the surpassing, incomparable, exceeding riches of his grace, expressing kindness in Christ Jesus. MacArthur says, from the moment of salvation through the ages to come, we never stop receiving the grace and kindness of God. He glorifies himself by eternally bestowing on us endless and limitless grace and kindness. I remember when I was studying these passages, it was when I was doing a Hebrews Bible study. And I always have these silly thoughts and I think, what would this look like? Like in heaven, what would this look like? And so I brought some props tonight because I wanna demonstrate to you what Lisa thinks this might look like. So I want you to imagine God, and this is my right hand. So here's Jesus. And then down there, We're all seated with Christ, okay? So we're all seated with him. And so imagine God says, hey, Jesus, do you see Pastor Tom down there? 
you know, I know he really likes coffee. So Jesus, will you pass this down to Pastor Tom? I want to show kindness to him. Hey, Jesus, do you see Pastor Terry? We know he likes history. So we've been thinking, how can we be kind to Pastor Terry? Let's give him this history book on the Titanic. Just pass it on down. We want to forever show kindness to him. But I see Mary Esther down there. And you know, she has always loved to worship. So let's just pass her a new worship CD because she just might need a new CD. Let's show her some kindness down there. Arlene is down there, and we know she loves tea. So Jesus, just because we love Arlene and we want to show her kindness, let's pass her some tea. (laughs) Irish breakfast tea. I see Lisa's mom, Becky, down there, Jesus. And we want to show some kindness to her. She has always loved an Almond Joy candy bar. So Jesus, will you just pass that down? Because we want to show her grace expressed in kindness. Just pass this all to you. When I envisioned this for me, it was like, hand me a latte, you know? (laughs) So for eternity... God saved us in order that. That's the purpose. It's a purpose statement in order that for the ages to come, he might show us the surpassing riches of his grace expressed in his kindness. Now, isn't that beautiful? Grace expressed in kindness. Four words, grace expressed in kindness. God's purpose for seating us with Christ in the heavenly places with him is so that we would be forever blessed. Now, I know that a lot of times we struggle with not feeling good enough. And we do struggle with sin. And we should, we should work on those things. We should overcome. But I think when God thinks about us, he's not just pointing down, oh, she missed it again and You know, she's watching too much TV, and gosh, I can't believe she snapped at Brian again. She should know better after 22 years. I wonder if maybe God's up there thinking about how he's going to show us his grace expressed in kindness. If those are his thoughts towards us, how can I show kindness to them? How can I give from the surpassing riches of my grace? Just something for you to think about. So we're going to be with Jesus and God forever, experiencing the incomparable, surpassing, exceeding riches of his grace, expressed in kindness. And I love that. Amen. Let's move on to Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. And this is on your handout. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And then verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. It's repeated twice in this little passage, in verse 5 and in verse 8, that we're saved by grace. For by grace you have been saved. So let's dig just a little bit deeper about this grace. I have some cross-references. One is John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. I love that description of Jesus. It says Jesus is full of grace and truth. And we just learned God has incomparable riches of grace. I want to look at how Paul describes the gospel. Acts 20, verse 24, Paul says, For I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. So the good news, the gospel, is that God is a God of grace. 
It is the gospel of the grace of God. He's full of kindness for undeserving people. That's you and me. Romans 3.23, in the context of this, is salvation. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. And we learned last week about redemption. So I wanna talk for just a minute about the word faith because we're saved by grace, which is how, through faith, which also answers how, by grace, through faith. So faith in the Greek means a firm persuasion based upon hearing. So after you hear, you're firmly persuaded, you're you're convinced of the truth. It's a conviction of the truth. And the root word means to convince or persuade. I think about a used car salesman. He's trying to convince or persuade you that what he's saying is true. A couple quotes about faith. Persuasion of the truth results in faith. Because we're persuaded that the thing is true, we believe. A good example of this connection between um, faith and this being convinced is what Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 1.12. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I've entrusted to him until that day. So as I tried to figure out, well, what is the relationship based on these scriptures between grace and faith? My conclusion was God does freely give us salvation. It is a free gift of grace. There's nothing we could do to earn it. There's nothing we've done to deserve it. We don't have to work to be good enough and then be saved, but God freely gives it to us. I was rebellious when God found me and saved me. I was not sweet. God found me and he saved me. But what we have to do is upon hearing the gospel, after hearing, we have to choose to believe. We have to be persuaded and convinced that it's true and make that choice to believe. So it's a gift by God's grace. That's what God does. He says, here's the gift, but we have to say, I'm convinced that this is true and I'm gonna receive it and believe it. So God does part by grace and then we do part through faith. Does that make sense? It's both by grace and through faith. So that's the relationship. All right, so this next part, I want y'all to know I did this in my dreams at 5 a.m. this morning. This is what I taught you. I said, so formerly... We were all of these things. We've talked about it. We've, according to the world, according to the enemy, according to our flesh, formerly we were that. But now, I made a list. Now we are alive with Christ, verse five, saved by grace through faith, also verse five, loved with a great love by a merciful God, verse four, Raised up and seated with Christ in the heavenly places, verse six. Recipients of grace expressed in kindness for ages to come, verse seven. Created for good works, which God prepared beforehand, verse 10. So those were my conclusions from studying all of those things that we are now. Everything that followed the but God, this is the truth about us now. So as I concluded my study, I don't know how long I I studied this, but it was really fun. But this was the summary that I came to. The good news, the gospel, is that God is a God of grace. He and Jesus are full of grace. God is no longer that God of wrath and punishment we see in the New Testament, but he poured all of that wrath and punishment that we deserved on his son, Jesus. God extends grace to us. And and after I wrote that down, I thought there is nothing that I could ever do to be worth the life of God's own son. But God saw me for what I was and he saw what I had done and he sent his son to die for me anyway. And so the same is true for all of us. 
wherever you were, wherever you are, whatever you were doing, whatever you are doing, God saw us for what we were and he saw what we had done, but he sent his son to die for us anyway. Our sin didn't scare him. He sent his son to die for us anyway. Why? Just so for the ages to come, for all eternity, we could fellowship with God and Jesus and Holy Spirit and all of our brothers and sisters in Christ and receive grace expressed in kindness. We're unworthy, but his unfathomable love is greater than all of our sin. So as I talk about grace, I just want to add this one caveat that all of this grace, and, and I could talk about grace forever. It's, it's one of those niches for me. I love to talk about grace. But grace is not permission to sin. So I want you to hear, God is a God of grace. But just because God is a God of grace doesn't mean that you can go out and steal something tonight because you know God will forgive you. God is a God of grace, but it's not permission to sin. And that's covered in Romans 6, verse 15. It says, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. So God has grace, but he desires holiness too. So we wanna pursue holiness while we experience God's extravagant grace. So let's move on to the Jews and the Gentiles. So I started by explaining the chapter divisions, verses one through 10, which we just covered, salvation in a nutshell, what we were like, what we're like now, what Jesus did for us, what our future will be. So reconciliation of sinners, that's us to God. So these next verses are about the reconciliation of Jews and Gentiles to each other and to God. So let's pick up with verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So what is a Gentile? A person who belongs to a nation other than Israel is a Gentile. We're going to talk a little bit about Abraham, but the Jews descended from Abraham. And so if you're not a Jew, then you're a Gentile. And these Ephesians that we're talking about, before they were in Christ, they were the, the Gentiles. That's how he describes them. So I hope you're starting to pick up. We saw some things that we could make a good list from, right? He lists five things about those Gentiles. The Gentiles were without Christ, without citizenship in Israel, without covenants, without hope, and without God. Now, I'm going to skip around a little bit because he talks about the problem and he mixes that in with the solution. So I'm going to skip around. I'll tell you where we're going. But I want you to jump down right now to verse 14. And this is talking about Jesus. It says, He, Jesus, broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. So what is this enmity? It's hostility. It's a reason for opposition. It's the opposite of love. And I like to call it, it's a tension. We used the rope last week. It's a good illustration for tension. So there's this separation between the Jews and the Gentiles. So let's talk about who the Jews were. The Jews were God's chosen people. And I brought with me tonight a tallit that Carrie brought back from Israel for me. And a tallit was a prayer shawl that, that Jewish men wore and wear to remind them of the commandments in the Torah. So Abraham was the father of the nation created by God that became known as Israel. And the term Jews in the New Testament 
refers to all the children of Israel, to Abraham's descendants. And God's plan was that through Abraham and his descendants, that all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And that was Genesis 12, 3. So just a quick example of that. For five years, I struggled with chronic migraine headaches. And I saw multiple neurologists in town. I was put on all kinds of medications Nothing helped. At the worst, I had them every other day, a migraine, every other day. But then I read about this um, institute up in Durham with a world-renowned Jewish headache expert. And within four months of seeing that world-renowned Jewish headache expert, I was better. And I haven't had a migraine in five months. So can you understand, if you've ever seen a Jewish doctor, you understand what part of what God meant when he said, through them, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. I was blessed. So the Jews were set apart. They were told to be holy and clean. Leviticus 20, verse 26, God says to them, thus you are to be holy to me. For I, the Lord, am holy, and I have set you apart from the peoples to be mine. Wearsby says the cause of the enmity was the law, because the law made a definite distinction between Jews and Gentiles. They were different in religion, in dress, in diet, and laws. God had separated the Jews from the Gentiles so that his purposes in salvation might be accomplished. So the Jews declared the Gentiles as unclean and unholy. And Wearsby goes on to say, the Gentiles were aliens and strangers, and the Jews never let them forget it. Many Pharisees would pray daily, oh God, I give thanks that I am a Jew and not a Gentile. And that phrase, uncircumcision, it's a term of derision, defamation, and reproach. So my first experience with a Jewish person was in college, and there was a young girl that was part of the freshman class. She lived in my dorm, and she was always letting everyone know that she was Jewish. And I didn't really get it, but after about, you know, I don't know, the fifth or sixth time, I started to feel like, well, she's acting like she's better than me because she's Jewish and I'm not. And so that was wrong on her part. God didn't create them to be arrogant. But I decided, well, I don't like her. I'm not going to hang out with her. No, 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 no. And I started running my mouth. And that was wrong on my part. So there was this tension between us. And I didn't even know what that was. For centuries, the Jews have looked down upon the Gentiles with an attitude that God didn't intend for them to display. And in the same way, we Gentiles have been very guilty of having a reciprocal animosity, a hatred towards the Jews. The Holocaust, the diaspora, I don't even have to explain that to you. So there was a tension between the Jews and Gentiles. So what separated them? Ephesians 2.14 says there was a barrier, a dividing wall, an enmity. So I brought this prop to visualize this barrier, this dividing wall and enmity between Gentile and Jew. And so let's look at this. The Jews were chosen by God. The Gentiles were not chosen. The Jews had the law. The Gentiles had no promises. The Jews were holy and the Gentiles were unholy. The Jews were clean, the Gentiles were unclean. So when Paul writes the barrier of the dividing wall, that's alluding to the separation separation of the court of the Gentiles from the rest of the temple in Jerusalem. Known as the Soreg, pardon my Hebrew, I couldn't figure out how to pronounce that, couldn't find it on the internet, but this partition prohibited the Gentiles from entering into the temple courts. And so this wall had signs warning the Gentiles of what would happen if they entered into this area. And this is a picture of one of the signs. The inscription says, 
No outsider shall enter the protective enclosure around the sanctuary, and whoever is caught will only have himself to blame for the ensuing death. So they were warned. So let's talk for a minute about what is the law, the covenant of promise. The Jews had the covenant. A covenant is a solemn binding agreement. And the Bible speaks of seven different covenants that God made. And we're going to talk about three of them. Some of those I couldn't even pronounce. But we're going to briefly look at three that he made with Israel. And those are the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant. So the Abrahamic covenant was God's covenant with Abraham that we see in Genesis 17. There was a promise of descendants and land. Nations would come from him. And there was a promise of God's presence. He said, I'll be your God and you'll be my people. The Davidic covenant, I'm sorry. Oh no, went too far. The Davidic covenant was from 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 and 16. It says, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. So there was a promise to the Jewish people of an enduring kingdom fulfilled in the Messiah who would be a descendant of David. And then there's the new covenant, which Pastor Willie talked about on Sunday. This is from Jeremiah um, verses 31, verses 3 through 34, and I'm just going to read verse 33. It says, but this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart, and I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And in Ezekiel 36, 26, God gives more promises. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So the new covenant, there was a promise of transformation and relationship and forgiveness of sin. MacArthur said, within the covenants, God gave and renewed his promises to bless Prosper, multiply, save, and redeem Israel. Within them, he promises to give his people a land, a kingdom, and a king. And to those who believed in him, he promised eternal life and everything in heaven. I got ahead of myself again. So the Gentiles weren't part of these covenants. They had no promises of land or descendants, of God's faithfulness, relationship, no promise of transformation, forgiveness of sin, no promise of an enduring kingdom or a Messiah. So the Jews had everything, but the Gentiles, they had nothing. The Gentiles had nothing. They were left empty-handed. Ephesians 1.12 said that they were without Christ, without citizenship in Israel, without covenants, without God. No wonder they were without hope. They had nothing. MacArthur says they had no purpose, no plan, no destiny, except the ultimate judgment of God. They had no God-blessed community or kingdom, no divine benefactor. They were all outside the dominion of God. So there was this dividing wall. And I do want to point out that God created the enmity, the tension between the two, but he did not create the hatred. Okay, he created the tension by marking his people as holy as his people. He gave them covenants, but hatred is a sin. God did not create the hatred. For example, with the sports team, there's tension between the two rival teams, but there shouldn't be hatred. So I do want to point that out. So there's a verse that we skipped over before, and it's on your handout. It's Ephesians 2.13. It says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So this but now parallels the but God that we saw earlier in Ephesians 2. Before the Gentiles were far off 
from the covenants, from Israel, from hope, from God, but now they're brought near to them all. On your handout, Ephesians 2, 14 through 16 says, for he himself is our peace. And I love that. Not only did Jesus give us peace and Holy Spirit produces peace in us, but he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity. So those are a lot of words, and it's kind of back and forth. So we're going to look at the five W's and an H. And I had to break this up into two parts because it wouldn't all fit on one slide. So who? Jesus, our peace. What did he do? He broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. He established peace. How did he do it? And these verses list three different things by abolishing in his flesh the enmity through the cross, by putting to death the enmity. So it says it three different ways. And when did that happen? Jesus' death on the cross. So this word abolish, it means to be rendered entirely idle, to render to activity or to nullify. So the barrier, everybody look up here, the barrier that was between them, it was abolished. It was nullified and it was rendered inactive. The reason for the tension, it no longer exists. That's what Jesus did on the cross. Wearsby said, in order for Gentiles and Jews to be reconciled, the wall had to be destroyed and Jesus did this on the cross. When he died, you remember the veil in the temple was literally torn in two. But that barrier, the dividing wall, the wall of separation was figuratively torn down. So Jesus abolished the enmity. As we say in the South, he killed it dead. He killed it dead. Jesus abolished the enmity. So look again at your handout, but let's pick up with verse 15. This is gonna give us the why. So that in himself, he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. So this gives us the why. Who, Jesus, our peace, what, broke down the barrier of the dividing wall, why? And this again is where it's helpful to make lists because you start to see a pattern to make both groups into one, to make the two into one new man, to reconcile them both in one body to God. And it was seeing this, I started to see a pattern. There's a lot of both or two, and then there's a lot of one. Now there's one, so we're gonna look at that. So a cross-reference is Romans 10, 12 through 13. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And Galatians 3, 28 says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. MacArthur says, when Jesus died on the cross, he abolished every barrier between man and God and between man and his fellow man. So let's talk about this reconciliation. Um, Ephesians 2.16 says, he might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross. The word reconcile means to change from one condition to another so as to remove all enmity and leave no impediment to unity and peace. So it's from turning to hostility to friendship. So Jew and Gentile were reconciled to each other 
through the cross because sin, hatred, was done away with. And they were both reconciled to God through the cross. It's hard for me to grasp how this happened at the same time. So I've spent a lot of time, how did this really happen at the same time? And and we don't have to totally get that, but we know that they were both reconciled to each other and then together reconciled to God on the cross. So as they are both brought to God, they're both brought to each other. A good cross reference would be Colossians 1, 19 through 22. For it was the Father's good pleasure through him, Jesus, to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross through him. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless beyond reproach. So Ephesians 2, 17 through 18 says, And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So I just heard another both and another one. So there's a pattern here. So Jesus broke down this barrier of the dividing wall, establishing peace to make the two into one new man. So there is now one new man. So verse 15 said the two were made into one new man. There's one group. Verse 14 said both groups were made into one. There's one body. Verse 16 says we're reconciled to God in one body. There's one access. Verse 18 says both have access to God and there's one spirit. There's I'm sorry, verse 18 says we have access to God in one spirit. So there's now a cross which unites Jew and Gentile. There is no longer any barrier. There's no longer any tension. There's no longer any dividing wall. When Jesus died, the veil was torn. The barrier was torn down and we were reconciled to each other. We are one new man. We are one in Christ MacArthur says, in the kingdom of Jesus Christ, all barriers come down. In him there are no walls, no classes, no castes, no races, no gender, no distinctions of any sort. So the term one new man, this word new in the Greek, means unused or unaccustomed, not new in time or recent, but new as to form or quality different in nature from that which is old. So my prop here is my hair. I have a new haircut. I just got it cut yesterday. And you're all thinking, it looks the same like it's always looked. So this haircut is new in terms of time. It's recent. It's not new in terms of nature. I didn't come in and have my hair like Pat's tonight and say I have a new haircut. That would be new. So this one new man is a completely different man. He's not new in terms of recent. He's completely different. So there's no longer Jewish Christians or Gentile Christians or Jew or Gentile. There's just Christians. It's a completely different man. It is a new man. My conclusion as I finish studying the Jews and the Gentiles, was this. I think it breaks Jesus' heart to see what Gentiles have done to the Jews. He died to reconcile us and to make us one. And I know for me, you know, many of us, we're brought up culturally. We hear certain statements about certain races or certain groups of people. And it's hard to undo what you've always heard. It's hard to never think those thoughts again. So sometimes those thoughts are still, those thoughts about the Jews are still going to go round and round in your head. But what you can do is choose not to pass them on. 
You can choose not to pass them on to your children and to your grandchildren. And that's how we create a different culture. So I just want to encourage you, the next time you struggle with a bad thought about the Jews, you're now one with them. You are one with them. So repent and remember what Jesus did to make you one. So last week I said, I, was a, I acted like a pastor. I said, in conclusion, three times. I'm only gonna say it once. And I think I'm just gonna, I think I'm just gonna leave you with that. Well, let me just read. Let me just read the last passage. I'm not gonna elaborate. I'm only gonna say it once. In conclusion. This is on your handout. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. I do want to just add one caveat that the Gentiles didn't replace the Jews. The Gentile church has not replaced the Jews. And we're going to look at that a little bit more next week as we touch on the mystery and Romans 11. But I do just want to add that tonight since we're talking about the Jews and the Gentiles. God has a great plan for all the Jews to be saved. So Father God, I thank you for our time together tonight. I thank you for your word and how you've taught us tonight, God, how because of your mercy and love, you saved us so that you could show us kindness for all eternity. We thank you for that grace, but we recognize it's not permission to sin. And God, we thank you that we were the Gentiles without hope, without citizenship, without covenants, without you. But God, you've made us into one, two, one new man with the Jews. And God, we pray that you would help us not to tear down our brothers and sisters, but, but to remember everything Jesus did, the pain and suffering he went through to make us one and to truly be one with our brothers and sisters in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. You want us to read chapter three next week? What read is that? Chap- Please read chapter three for next week. Don't you feel really, when you hear the truth broken down like, doesn't it just anchor your faith? I mean, it just like, it really just like, yes, yes, yes. It's like, wow. Can't wait to hear about Romans 11 next week. Grafted in. Wild bunch grafted in. Well, let's stand and we'll be dismissed. Thank you, Lisa. What a great teaching. Lord, we thank you for your word of truth that's full of living power. I pray now that we would meditate, even tonight as we go into our places of rest, that there would be this word that would just kind of whirl around and we would awaken with such a revelation of the goodness of God that when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us and has made a way. In Christ we pray. Amen. God bless you. Thank you, Lisa.